All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. If you've been here for the, the past couple of weeks, you know that in this letter, there are times when the Apostle Paul will speak directly to the Jewish believers who are there in the Roman church. And in doing so, he has recently been discussing, or he's been involved in a discussion, I should say, concerning the law, if you will, the Mosaic law, and if it has a part in the believer's life. Well, Paul has been very clear, and I'll show you that in just a few minutes, but he's been very clear that no believer has ever been saved by the law or is obligated to live under the law. Now, that being said, it is certainly understandable why the Jews felt it was important to keep the law as a standard of life, and that is because, no pun intended, but God said so. Not only did God say so, but he said there would be repercussions if they did not. I encourage you to go back and read Leviticus chapter 26. TJ brought this up on Wednesday night, and uh, there's a lot going on in that chapter. But basically, he's saying there, if you follow my decrees and are faithful to obey my commands, and he goes on and lists many things, but basically there will be an abundance of blessings. God will honor that. But then he says, however, if you do not listen to me or obey these commands, and if you break my covenant by rejecting my decrees, treating my regulations with contempt, and refusing to obey my commands, he says, I will punish you. And it's very clear. And if you go back and read that, you're going to go, wow. Now from there, thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 27, really the, the couple chapters prior to that, Moses had given the Israelites what, what literally seems to be a limitless number of commands. And then came Deuteronomy chapter 27, Verse 26, where he said, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law and carry them out. And then, of course, came chapter 28, which he spelled out a number of those curses. Well, we then fast forward to the first century. Of course, you know we're in the first century here in Romans. So we fast forward to the first century where rabbis, and they were actually correct in this statement, but the rabbis said there are 613 commands that the Jews are to obey, and there actually are 613 commands in the Old Testament. So they were very uh, straightforward in telling people that 248 of those were things that the Jews must do. 365 of them are the things that they were prohibited from doing. Now those rabbis, as well as other groups, for example, like the Pharisees, they made it clear that these laws, these commands were to be lived out in the everyday lives of the Jewish people. Well, if you've ever taken the time, or if you ever want to take the time to go and read through all of those laws, you might remember what I said a couple weeks ago from Acts 15 where Peter said the law was a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. It was a lot. 
Well, understanding the responsibility of the Jews to keep the law, it has troubled some of them with what to do with it since many of them have now become believers. And adding to that is now this letter, the book of Romans, this letter that Paul has written where he has stated without equivocation that salvation is by God's grace and it is through faith. It is not by works. It is not by or through the law. And Paul has been very clear on this. And in addition to that, not only does it not save you, but as a believer, you are no longer under its bondage. Okay? As a believer in Christ, you are no longer under the bondage of the law. Here in the book of Romans, let me just share with you a few things that Paul has said, starting in chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, Therefore, no one, that's kind of clear, no one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. He says you can never have a right relationship with Christ through the law. God will never look at you as any other way but sinful if you think being under the law is the way to go. Okay? Two verses later, verse 22. He says this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so he gives both sides. He flat out says, you will not be declared righteous in the eyes of God by following the law, but you will through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Here is how it won't happen. Here's how it will happen. Chapter 4, verse 5. However, to the man who does not work, okay, he does not try to earn his way, to the man who does not work, but he trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So even here, folks, for the wicked, when he places his faith in Jesus Christ, it is credited to him as righteousness. Stay in chapter 4, look at verses 13 and through the beginning of verse 15. He says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. But it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, well, then faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Why? Because law brings wrath. Now, back in chapter 3, verse 20, which I read at the beginning there, he said the law is what made us conscious of our sin, right? It tells us that we're sinful. That's what the law does. Here in chapter 4, verse 15, is that sin brings forth God's wrath. And the only way to avoid that wrath, he says, is to receive the righteousness that comes by faith, not by the law. Look at verse 16. 
Therefore, the promise comes, once again, by faith, so that it may be by grace, and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. By the way, his offspring are not just the Jews. That's everybody. It's everybody. Okay? People of faith, if you will, in this context. Okay? Now, chapter 6, and I'm not going to, if I kept reading all these verses, we would never get through the sermon. But in chapter 6, and you might remember this because it wasn't that long ago, Paul says that we are either a slave to sin or we are a slave to righteousness. Now, a slave to sin is, is really someone who is a slave to the law because it is the law that constantly reminds them that they are sinners. Living under the law, we constantly disobey because no one has the ability to keep it. Not a single person. And therefore, what do we do? We sin on a continual basis, which, verse 16 and verse 23 says, deserves death. We knew one of those, right? The wages of sin is death, right? So just in those, those few verses that I've read, we can see clearly what I stated last week, and that is the law cannot save us and it cannot sanctify us, okay? Now, that being said, it's easy by reading these things to say, well, you know, the, the, the law comes across kind of gloomy, almost as if it's a negative, It's a bad thing. I mean, look at what it says. I mean, the law condemns us, he says, right? It 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 makes sin our master. It continues to reveal to us our sin, which therefore leads us to death. There's not a whole lot of good saying coming from that for some people. But yet in the midst of all those verses, chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, We, meaning believers, are not under the law, but we are under grace. And therefore, sin shall not be our master. There's been a lot said about the law, about faith and grace. But the great news is there that we are not under that. We saw something actually very similar in chapter 7, just a couple weeks ago actually. We saw something similar in chapter 7 verse 6, which was the last verse that we looked at, where it tells us that we died to the law. It tells us that we have been released from the law and that we do not serve in the old way of the law. But it says we serve in the new way of the Spirit or in through, and or through the Holy Spirit. And so we are blessed people, folks, to not be under the law and therefore doomed because of our failure to keep it. Pursue it all you want. You'll never keep it. You'll fail and then fail and then fail and then fail. And so with all of this being said, I think it's reasonable that a a young in the faith Jewish believer might be confused. I think it's reasonable that he might be confused. It's the first century, right? You've got to keep that in the back of your mind. It's the first century, and there are still many Jews under Judaism, 
right? There are also many Jews who are coming to faith in Christ. And in making it even more complicated, there are also many false teachers who are actually trying to combine the two, right? They're saying that a, uh, to be a Christian, you must obey the law of Moses. So there's got to be a lot going on in some of their minds. Now, Paul obviously is, is, is not oblivious to all this. As you know, Paul himself is a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. And thinking of Philippians chapter 3, he knew what it was like to be under the law and because of it to think that he was right with God. Paul knew that. Yet he came to Christ and he considered it nothing but dung. Everything he had that he can brag about under the law, he says it is dung. He gets it. He understands. And so with all of that as a background, we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 7, verse 7, where Paul believes that the question that is currently out there is, then what good is the law? Paul believes that's what many of his Jewish readers, the Jewish believers, that's what they're thinking. Well, then, Paul, what good is the law? If as Christians we are no longer bound to it, what is its purpose? And we'll see just the beginning of that today. Now, I'm going to read uh, verses 5 through 6, and then I'll go right into verses 7 and 8. Starting in verse 5, he says, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul mentioned earlier in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, how these people were, meaning past tense, he mentions how these people were slaves to sin. And that, of course, as I mentioned already, because they were slaves to the law. He said in that passage, he said they offered the parts of their bodies in slavery to impurity, to ever-increasing wickedness. Well, that sounds very similar. That sounds like what I just read there in chapter 7, verse 5, which I'm going to read one more time. When we were controlled by the sinful nature, right? He's talking about that very same time period, right? Listen to what he says. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. 
So with that now in their minds, that's just two verses ago, Paul begins with the question that he feels that they may ask. And that is what it says in verse 7. Is the law sin? If our natural impulses to sin are aroused by the law, then isn't the evil that I commit the fault of the law and therefore make it evil as well? Well, Paul's response here is the very same as it was in chapter 6, verse 1, as well as in chapter 6, verse 15. If you remember those, his answer is certainly not, or better, absolutely not. If you remember, that is the strongest negative in the Greek language. Okay? Paul here is essentially saying a holy law does not cause sin. It is the sinful passions within us that are stirred up when we are told that we should not indulge in a particular sin. When we are told not to do it, we want to do it. And that is not the fault of the law. Matter of fact, not only is the law not sin, Paul says it's just the opposite. Right here in chapter 7, verse 12, we're told that the law is holy, it is righteous, it is good. Two verses later, verse 14, he says the law is spiritual, simply meaning that the law has been originated from God himself. And then in 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says the law is good if one uses it properly. Okay? Now here in our text, Paul is now going to explain the proper use of the law, and he's going to answer the question, what is its benefit? Okay? Still in verse 7 here, he says, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. He's saying here, folks, the law is the means of disclosing or revealing our sin. Let me say that again. The law is the means of disclosing or revealing our sin. You see, folks, the law requires perfect obedience, which we are all incapable of. As one commentator says, because God, in, in the law, because God has disclosed his divine standards of righteousness, men are able more accurately to identify sin, which is failure to meet those standards. Well, to now go ahead and give them a particular illustration, Paul decided to use himself as an example. Okay? When he now says in verse 7, we're still in verse 7, Paul says, let me give you an example. Okay? It's very practical. It's of me. He says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, folks, just real quick, please don't misunderstand this. Yes, Paul is going to use a very simple personal experience, but this experience is universal truth. 
okay? This is not simply a personal story of Paul that he hopes that you can identify with. People do that in churches all the time. This is not what Paul is doing. This is doctrinal truth about the correct use of the law. This is not to be looked at as a cool story to help you understand. He's giving you doctrinal truth. It just happens to be anecdotal, okay? So why is that important? Because not every Jew, folks, applied the law correctly. Not every Jew applied the law correctly. Many of these first century Jews did not understand the correct use of the law. Even the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, we've all read about them in the Gospels. They didn't get it, did they? They never used the law to look at the sinfulness of their heart. Did you ever notice that? They never used the law to look at the sinfulness of their own heart. They paid more attention to their external behavior. What I look like? What am I doing? Can everybody see me? Jesus actually rebuked them for these kinds of things. You're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. And look at you. Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you. And if you ever hear those words, you're in trouble in Scripture. You don't want to hear woe to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Pretty easy illustration, right? You're looking at the outside of the dish, but what's going on inside? They never looked at the inside, did they? Greed, self-indulgence. Two verses later, verse 27 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. Once again, the outside looks great. Inside is jacked up, messed up. See? I mentioned uh, Philippians chapter 3 earlier. Paul spoke of himself in that passage the same way before he came to faith in Christ. In Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, you might remember this, Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless, he says. But somewhere between that time and when Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, he realized that the requirements of God's law were not outward, but they were of the heart and that he had failed on that issue. Somewhere between that time and where he is now, he realized it. I'm, I'm not getting this. And he realized he failed. Paul obviously went back to what everybody knew, and that was the Ten Commandments. 
And he got to the part that says, do not covet. And by the way, it's my personal opinion that he got to a lot of other parts as well as do not covet. He's just using do not covet. Okay? A lot of things I'm sure he probably failed that. But he got to the part, he says in our text, that says do not covet, and God pricked his conscience. And he said, you know what? I'm a coveter. The law says do not covet. He looked within and said, I'm a coveter. That's what I do. This is why Paul said later on, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he says, we know that the law is not made for the righteous. Did you hear that? The law is not made for the righteous, but he says it's made for lawbreakers, rebels, ungodly, sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. See? We know why. They're the ones who need to realize they're sinful. It's not made for the righteous. So once again, it's clearly revealing the purpose of the law. Now this, of course, is never stated clearer than in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. I've said, said this many times. Galatians 3, 24, where he says very clearly, the law was put in charge to do what? To lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. So he shows there, there are two different things going on here, two different job descriptions. The law had a job. The law's job was to lead us to Christ. It did that by constantly revealing we're failing, we're sinful. Constantly, over and over and over, you have failed one of these, if not numerous of these laws. And the point of that is to show I need help. I need a Savior. And that's why he says the point of the law is to lead us to Christ because we know we're screwed up and we need a Savior. And then it says so that we can be justified by faith. The law was to prove that we're sinful in need of a Savior. But justification, he says, comes through faith. It's very clear. Okay? Now, going into verse 8, Paul is going to quickly describe the relationship that our sinfulness has with a holy law. Verse 8. But sin, he says, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, it produced in me, Paul says, every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. I'm going to read that in the New Living Translation real quick. It says, But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that kind of power. But he starts off in, in more of a clearer point. Sin used this command to arouse these covetous desires. This command in this context, as you know, is do not covet, Right? So similar to what he said earlier in verse 5, the sinful passions that were aroused by the law, he says, were at work in his body. Okay? Did you see that again? The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within him. So he says here that the law 
stirs up sin. As I mentioned earlier, the law itself, the law itself is holy. It is righteous and it is good. The problem is that we are not. The commands of the law here, which are do not covet, okay? But the commands of the law in general, not just one of them, but in general, stimulate the sin within us to violate those commandments and now cause us to be a transgressor. I mentioned that this morning. Remember, folks, a transgressor is to know the truth of God and yet purposely, directly violate it in order to fulfill our own desire. When we know, when we learn the law and the law says this, and you say, I don't want to do that, I want to do just the opposite, you are now become a transgressor. See? The law showed what was right and what was wrong, and like Paul, we chose the latter. As I said back in the day when we were studying verse 5, no one walks through the park touching all the park benches until you put a sign up that says, do not touch. And that sign is going to stimulate every one of us to do the very thing that sign forbids. And that's not even the law of God. That's just the law of the painter. (laughs) But that's what it does. The moral law of God stirs within us that desire to do evil, to sin. The law telling us clearly what is wrong in the eyes of God stirs up evil in the unbeliever because the unbeliever has a built-in rebellious nature that makes him want to do the very thing that God despises. The very thing. Folks, that is not the fault of the law. But the very presence of truth that sometimes urges us to rebel. Hopefully we all understand that if we're honest. When we're told not to do something, that's what I want to do. And this is why Paul ends here with, apart from the law, He says, sin is dead. Now, this does not mean that sin does not exist outside of the law. We actually already discussed that in chapter 5, verse 13. It tells us before the law was given, sin was in the world. Okay, so I want to be clear with that. What he's saying here is kind of in a comparative sense. Okay, sin is, if you will, not as active without the law. As we have talked about all this morning, it doesn't overwhelm the sinner as it does when the law becomes known. Okay? Sin was there before the law, but now when the law comes into play, more sin follows it. Because when it becomes known, that's when our deviant juices begin to flow. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told to go against that nature within us. That's how we're made, with a nature to sin. So what is the law for? Well, we know for a fact that the law was to give the holy standards of Almighty God to Israel. 
period, right? They were God's standards to give to Israel. But they're also to help them to recognize, as we've already discussed, that they were unable to keep them. They gave them those laws to say, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. I want you to be different. I want you to be separate from every nation on the planet. You and you only have I chosen. But he knows that they're going to fail, and they're going to fail miserably. And therefore, the whole purpose was to show them through failure, through failure, through failure. They keep failing. There needs to be an ultimate sacrifice. If you will, there needs to be a Savior. And as Galatians 3.24 says, it pushes them to Jesus Christ. See, that's the point. Which is what every one of us, we, we recognize we're a sinner. You must know that you're a sinner. Don't just go up to somebody and say, do you want to believe in Jesus? Why? That's why the hardest people to reach are the quote-unquote moral the good guy, the guy who most of us say, yes, yeah, a decent person. I enjoy talking to them. He's not the jerk, the drunk, the thief, the whatever. We're using human scales here, of course. They're the hardest people to reach because they have a hard time grasping the fact that you are a horrible sinner and you need a savior. Yep, you may be better than the whole rest of our block, but you still need a savior. Okay? There is no, you know, grading on a curve like we did back in the day. So it's important we understand, and we'll continue in, in this next time as Paul gets into more of his personal, his personal story. But he's, he's, he's moving in this direction as Paul is saying, you're not under the law. As Jews, you're not there anymore. You're believers in Christ. You're not bound by that. You're not a slave to it. But don't think it's useless. There's a reason for it. It is God's law. It does have a purpose. And so he wants them to obviously understand that. And we'll continue that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, just for this uh, short time that we are able to have today. As we look into this, Lord, and I hope that it is becoming, or it's beginning to come together, I should say, um, as we grasp, because I know there may be people in this church, but there are still many Christians out there today who for some reason think they're bound by the law. They don't understand that we walk, we live in the Spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the law just continues to show us we're sinful. Lord, that being said, we thank you that you've shown us this. We thank you that you've shown us in your word why the law, what is the purpose of the law, who's under it, who's not. And we thank you, Lord, right now that we are not. We thank you that you have saved us. You've already shown us that we are sinful and that we needed a Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for showing us this. And we thank you for the continual study that we will have on revealing this whole purpose of the law. Why is it there? Why did you give it? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.